All right, take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. We're continuing in our study here in this great portion of Scripture that's just really deep with theological truth. Let me just read the text for us as we begin. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now these are some of the greatest and most wonderful words I think that anybody could hear uh, in this portion of Scripture. In fact, all of chapter 8 in the book of Romans. That they're words that are meant to encourage our hearts. That they're words that meant are, are meant to bring great joy to us who have been justified by faith in Christ. And we've been working our way through this section of Scripture. And as we did, I told you I'm going to borrow an outline. And I'm going to put a simple four-point outline over top of the text just so you can hang your thought on these four uh, points, these four hooks, if you will, these four features that I want to draw your attention to in the text. And here they are, and I'll repeat them as we go through, but it's the reality, the reason, the route, and the result. The reality, the reason, the route, and the result. So the first great theological or doctrinal truth that opens, uh, chapter 8 opens up with is the reality. So what is the reality? Verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the reality. Yeah, amen. Right? There was a time past when we were uh, apart from Christ, when we were under condemnation, right? Just like the rest of humanity. We are under condemnation. We are dominated by sin's corrupting influence under the control of the prince of the power of the air, the evil one. We were enslaved. Uh, we were headed towards uh, pain without compassion, judgment without mercy, headed towards hell and eternal damnation. But that's no longer who we are. Uh, the new reality, again, is there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of God's kindness through Christ, we've been taken out of the realm of condemnation. There's not one possible bit of condemnation for those who are justified by faith alone. We'll never be eternally punished. We'll never be judged or condemned for our sin because we have been delivered from that realm, delivered from that condemnation and that penalty by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So again, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the place you want to be. That's the place of safety, in Christ alone. And being in him means that we are in union with him. We are part of him. Again, we're free from the realm of judgment because our union with Christ has set us free from that realm of condemnation and has placed us into the sphere of grace. Uh, the hymn writer Wesley says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ or claim the crown through Christ my own. Right? That's a tremendous truth, right? There's no condemnation because of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that the Lord won't chasten us as or chasten you or ch- 
Jesus and it's all for our sin, right? Or correct us for our sin. Uh, Hebrews 2 and 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So just like a good father disciplines his children, so our Heavenly Father chastens us when we need to be chastened, when we err, but there's no condemnation. And again, that means that we are certainly exempt from any final judgment on sin because the ultimate penalty for sin has been paid for. Therefore, there will be nothing that can separate us from the love of God found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reality at the end of chapter 8. Right? There's no condemnation at the beginning of the chapter, and through the chapter it flows to the end of the reality that nothing can separate us from the love of God found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's tremendous truth. Right? And that's truth that we need to be encouraged by. I was talking to a a uh, fellow today saying that we need to listen to what the Bible says. We need to believe what the Bible says. Because that's how we grow in grace. That's how we grow in our understanding. Not how do I feel about this issue or that issue, but what does the Bible say on the issue? There's no condemnation and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Now, aren't those encouraging words? Right? Amen? You're having a bad day? You don't have to have a bad day when you think about eternal truth. When you're having a bad day, we're called to look up where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, right? To set our affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. I mean, we're done with this realm to a certain extent, right? I mean, this is not our eternal home. We're just passing through. If you find yourself too caught up into the uh, uh, situations and issues and worldliness and things that are around you, well, then, uh, uh, you know, get rid of your basement. <laughs> Live in a tent, right? We're sojourners, not basement dwellers. Because we have a hope that the world doesn't have. We have the person of Christ that the world doesn't know. So the reality is there's no uh, uh, condemnation. What's the reason? Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, I, I said earlier that the law of spirit and life in Christ Jesus is really just another way to refer to the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who awakens us. I said this this morning. It's the Holy Spirit who awakens us from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us from death spiritually to life spiritually. And because of that reality, it's the Holy Spirit that frees us from the dominating influence that was once a part of our life before we came to Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, next phrase, has set you free. It's aorist tense. That just means it happened in the past, and it's a completed action. It's done. It's over. He has set you free. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Again, the past dominating power of our lives apart from Christ was the power of sin. It was depravity. It was the corruption of sin and, and the corruption of sin and death, and it motivated and controlled every action of our, our being and every thought. But in Christ Jesus, we have been liberated and set free from the death grip that sin once had on our lives. And again, it's through the truth. It's through the gospel and an understanding of the gospel. And remember when I said the phrase, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, again, uh, kind of a shorthand for the gospel. I said, uh, the gospel really is a law in the sense that the gospel must be obeyed. In the sense that the gospel is not just an offer to be accepted or rejected. That's how we think about it uh, incorrectly a lot of the time. It's not just a, an offer to be accepted or rejected, but the gospel calls upon us to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's a command to believe. So the gospel demands obedience. 
And the consequences for rejecting the gospel, the, the consequences for violating the law of the gospel, if you will, is condemnation, eternal condemnation. John 3 and 16, you're familiar with it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because, here's the reason, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's disobedience to the gospel. It's disobedience to the command to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 36 of John 3, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Right, so the reality is there's now no, no, no condemnation. The reason is because we've been set free from uh, the punishment of sin and death by the life given to us through the gospel um, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, brought into our heart and us made alive to that reality by the person of the Holy Spirit. The reality, the reason. So how did it happen? What's the route? What's the route? Well, it's called substitution, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. For what the law could not do. Remember, I turned it around and asked, well, what what can the law do? What what could the law do? Well, the law can convict of sin. The, The law can show us how sinful we are. The law reveals sin. The law actually even stirs up sin. You say, well, how in the world does it do that? Well, if you might remember back in chapter 7, it says when the law came along, Paul says, when the law came along, sin revived and I died. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? He says, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have come to know about coveting, but the law had, if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. This commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Right? The law reveals sin, and the law actually stirs up sin. And I give you this example all the time. The sign says, don't step on the grass. And the reality is you weren't even thinking about the grass until you saw the sign that said, don't step on the grass. And as soon as you saw the sign that said, don't step on the grass, the next thing that came to your mind was, who are you to tell me what to do? Right? That's the law stirring up sin, right? Telling us to, do, to not do something. And we say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. That's rebelliousness, right? For what the law could not do. Now, what the law could not do is the law couldn't break sin's power over us. The law could not and does not give us the power to obey. The law tells us what to do, commands us what to do, but doesn't give us the power to do so. And the law can set us, the law can set forth the standards of God's holiness and God's righteousness, but men in and of ourselves were completely incapable of fulfilling the law's demands. Right? The infection of sin in mankind has made obedience to God's law impossible. And I told you all through our study in Romans that the, the obedience that God demands is perfection. Not 99.9, pretty close. Right? He demands perfection. And we can't do it because of the infection of sin. And the law can never justify. Again, for what the law could not do. The law could never justify. And listen to this. Ultimately, the law could never condemn sin. 
The law can never condemn sin. The law can condemn the sinner, and it does. The law can devastate a sinner, and it does. But the law can't eliminate the problem of sin. The law can reveal sin, but the law can't destroy sin. For sin to be destroyed, ultimately, we need someone to come who is without sin. We need one who is a man, but yet more than a man. We need one who has power over both sin and death. We need one who can stand in our place and bear our penalty and take the stroke due for our transgression. We need one who breaks the power of canceled sin, who sets the prisoners free, whose blood can make the foulest clean, whose blood availed for me. We need that person. Because, again, the only way that sin can be destroyed is in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's through Christ and through his death that sin was dealt a death blow. Right? The death blow of sin was carried out through Christ. And in Christ, sin is condemned, doomed to destruction, and sin is destroyed in Christ. So what the law could not do, again, the law could never eliminate sin ultimately, weak as it was through the, f- the flesh, Uh, referring to our own human limitations, our own weaknesses, God did. God got involved. God intervened. God personally intervened in the affairs of mankind. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Because of God's work, we're now confident of the fact there is now, therefore, no condemnation. We're now confident of the fact, because God got involved, now we have a security in in our salvation. We're now confident of the fact that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because God is the God of salvation, because God got involved in this affair of our salvation. Our salvation is entirely of him. Our salvation is entirely from him. And that should be for us a tremendous encouragement, right? A tremendous encouragement. We were under condemnation. We were completely helpless. We were completely hopeless. We were separated. But God, who is enriched in mercy, he interceded. He interceded. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did, sending his own son. And of course, we talk about this often, God's salvation that he planned was not an afterthought. It's something that he planned before we entered into time. Right? That's an encouragement, too. As big of a mess up as we all are, because we all need a savior... God decided that he would save you and me before the foundation of the world. God planned to send his son before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 and 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Our salvation was God's plan before the world was conceived. Our salvation was God's plan for us who have repented and believed upon Christ before we were conceived. And now we live, we're in time beings. I got it, God's eternally lives outside of time, but we live in time, so in time we need to respond to the gospel message. I said that this morning, we need to repent, place our faith in Christ. But again, salvation is entirely biblically, salvation is entirely of God. It's of God, it's by God, it's through God. Again, look at the text. You'll see all three members of the Godhead are involved. For what the law could not do, God did, sending his own Son, so that the requirement, verse 4, of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Right? All three members of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. Now stop and ask yourself this question when you're kind of down in the dumps and discouraged about whatever is going on in your life, either on a personal level or, or whatever or around you in the world. How often do you stop and think about your salvation? And then how often do you stop and think of your salvation in the terms of it's the work of the triune God in your life? It's the work of the triune God in your life versus you, quote-unquote, accepting Jesus. You need to be more precise, more biblically accurate. I wonder how much more encouraged we would be a living life in a fallen world that is in absolute chaos, as we can see, if we thought more and more often on the truth that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, proving for us his eternal and in-time love and care for us that he has promised to carry all the way through to eternity future. Guess what? You can go to bed at night and lay your head down on the pillow if you have faith in Christ. It will be okay, I guarantee you. Because Christ has guaranteed it. God has guaranteed it. We have to start thinking biblically. I'm going to talk about this like part two from part one a couple weeks ago in the men's ministry. We've got to start thinking biblically because we are under absolute assault by the culture. And that assault by the culture that has rejected truth is finding its way into the church. Now, there's some guys that I used to think were pretty solid who have kicked the door wide open to the front of their church and allowed some stuff in uh, that's not by accident. It's by invitation. So we have to be aware of that. And I'm not the standard. It's the Bible's the standard. And and there are things that are going on everywhere that we have to start thinking and, and evaluating from a biblical standpoint to see if it matches up with the Scripture, not from what the culture tells us. Because the culture has already rejected the truth and the person of the truth. And as I listen and watch and observe, I'm hearing more and more conversations that's telling me we better make sure that no one takes us captive through philosophy or an empty deception through the traditions of men rather than according to Christ because I see it's coming. I'm seeing more and more unbiblical thinking. And the only way that we can stay that off is to know the truth then believe the truth and live according to the truth. The entirety of the Godhead is part of our salvation, something that has happened from eternity past in time that we respond to that's promised to take us to eternity future ought to change the way we look at life and the way we live our life. It ought to be a point of encouragement for us, and it ought to be a point that allows us and causes us to encourage ourselves, as I read out of the Ephesian passage, with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that's you preaching the gospel to yourself, understanding that truth, and you preach the gospel to yourself, and you preach the gospel to your neighbor, not your unsaved neighbor. You do that, but in the context of what I'm saying, your neighbor who's sitting next to you is saying, look, we've got to understand the truth together. This is what the Bible says. And we focus on the person of God, the person of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and not on us or our issues or the issues around us. I guarantee you, if we lived our lives that way, our lives would be much more happier, much more secure. I've used the analogy with you before, just in case you, this is not in my notes anywhere, so we're going to go like 20 or 30 minutes over because I'm on this rant, all right? But that's all right. Um, (laughs) you, You watched the football game the other night, whatever game it was, jumping up and down, cheering, crying, depending on whose team you're rooting for, right? We're at a distance. Ohio State doesn't play any better because you're cheering for them. They can't hear you. 
right? I mean, even if you're in the stadium, they can't hear you. We, we watch from a distance. We think we're a part of it, but we're really not a part of it. And that's the way it is in a biblical realm spiritually. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're not part of it. It's kind of like watching, TV, watching a football game at home. You know, you don't get sweaty. You don't get grass down your shorts. You're just a casual observer. Now, I, I get it. Some of the things that happen in the world will affect us. I got that. But we're ultimately not destined for this world. So our hope needs to be found somewhere else. Our, our focus needs to be upward, not on the things that are going on around us. The triune God's involved in our salvation. That's a tremendous point of encouragement. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son. Again, salvation from start to finish is of God. From predestination to justification to our ultimate glorification, Romans 8 and 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the first, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, that's all of God, and it's all tremendously good and an encouragement to us. And that's why we're certain there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Any aspect, if any aspect of our salvation had been left up to us, we could never be certain because we're weak in the flesh, right? And we would fail. So what the law could not do, because not God knew our flesh is weak, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. There's no salvation apart from the mercy of God. There's no salvation apart from God interceding in the affairs of mankind. There's no salvation apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no salvation found in Buddha. There's no salvation found in Allah or the prophet. There's no uh, salvation found in Muhammad or in Krishna or Joseph Smith or any other of the other pantheons of gods and goddesses that are false gods and goddesses out there. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. Salvation is only found in God's own son. Every proposed other way, every proposed other method apart from God's own Son is a false way, as I talked about this morning, and it is a delusion of Satan. It's a lie of Satan. Now note real carefully here how Paul takes the effort to say that God sent his own Son. And that phrase, his own Son, helps to describe who this person is. And again, that phrase, his own son, denotes that Jesus is one in essence and glory with God the Father. Jesus has been talking about that a lot in in John. John 10 and 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? For the Jews answered, not for good works, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Well, listen, it's not blasphemy if it's true. And it is. That's who Jesus Christ is, the Jesus Christ of the Bible. He's God. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Colossians 2 and 9, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He possesses it all. The the, the title Son of God is a title that points to the divine nature of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not become God's Son at birth. He was already God's Son from all of eternity. At his birth in Bethlehem, he took on flesh. He became became incarnate. Uh, He became a man. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was was, uh, with God and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, John 1 and 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1 and 15. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Those last two verses, Colossians 1 and 15 and John 1 14, have provoked great controversy throughout the history of the church. For some have gotten up and stood up and taken them to uh, mean that Christ is a created being, not divine. In 325 AD, a guy named Arius was condemned by the Council of Nicaea as a heretic because he taught that begotten means happen to, to happen or to become or to start to be, meaning that Christ must have a beginning in time, that Christ must be finite with respect to time, that Christ was nothing more than a, a created being. If you fast forward into our day, you get that heresy found in the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. They teach and believe that's the very same thing. Therefore, both Jehovah's Witnesses and, and uh, the Mormons are cults. They're cults. They are not bona fide Christian denominations, although there's a whole lot of guys with the tent door wide open say, come on in, because we believe in Jesus. Well, not, not really. Not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Mormons, the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus of the Roman Catholic Church, the different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. We have to get our terms right. And to be the firstborn of all creation, as it says in Colossians 1 and 15, Arius taught that must be that Christ was a supreme being, the supreme being among all created beings, but that he never rose any higher than the angels, that he's nothing more than a, a preeminent being. Arius said to worship uh, Christ would be to uh, be guilty of idolatry because Jesus is nothing more than a creature. R.C. Sproul says this, Arius saw, the attributing, uh, Arius saw the attributing of deity to Jesus Christ as blasphemous, a blasphemous rejection of what he considered to be biblical monotheism. As Arius believed God as one, both in person and being. We believe God is one, but he is three persons. Right? And when you go to the, the phrase uh, only begotten uh, in uh, John 1 and 14, that the word begotten, the only begotten is monogenes. It means the only unique one, the only one of his kind. One of a kind. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the God-man. He is the only beloved one. The, the word begotten is not another word for begat. Like so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so on a physical level. The idea of the word begotten, monogenes, is that Jesus is the singular, uniquely loved one of God. It's not a word of origin. It's a word of prominence. It's a word of preeminence. And again, that phrase, the firstborn of all creation, speaks to the same issue. Not created order, but preeminence. The preeminent one. And the New Testament is replete with examples of the fact that Jesus Christ is God, not a created being, but rather God of very God. Second blessed person of the Trinity. He has a preeminent title, Lord, in Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. In Mark chapter 2, verse 28, he claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 2, uh, 1 and 2, he has the authority to forgive sins. James chapter 2, verse 1, he's called the Lord of glory. John chapter 20, verse 28, he willingly receives worship from Thomas when Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. There's probably no singular 
greater chapter in affirming the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ than Hebrews chapter 11. So put a mark there in your Bible and just turn to Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we, we can't go into it in depth, but I just want to read it because I, I think you can pick a lot of things out just by a one-time quick reading of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world, right? The Creator. He is the radiance, verse 3. He is the radiance of God's glory, right? He is the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the sustainer of the universe. When he made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the of the Majesty on high, on high, having become a better, having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Verse five: For which of the angels did God ever say, "You are my son"? Today I've begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings forth, the, brings the firstborn into the world. Right, the preeminent one. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. And all the angels say, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God speaking to his Son, right? He says of his Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. God is one, yet he's more than one, right? Two members of the Trinity speaking about each other. And you, Lord, verse 10, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Again, there's the creator. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you shall remain. That's eternality, right? They'll perish, but you will remain. They will all become old like a garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same your years will not come to an end. Not only is he speaking of eternality, he's speaking about the doctrine of immutability. The fact that God never changes, he's always the same. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are lower beings than the person of Jesus Christ because he's the creator God. Not a created being. Creator, sustainer, eternal God, immutable. I mean, that's just, a, again, just a cursory reading over, over the top of that chapter. Back to, to Romans 8. It says here in verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son. I mean, God so loved the world that he, this world of lost, sinful, rebellious men, he sent his own Son into the world for the purpose to affect salvation of the guilty sinner in the way of righteousness. And Christ did what the law could not do. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son. The law, the, while the law could condemn sin, the law could not justify the guilty. But again, God, because of his great love and mercy for mankind, he could send his son into the world to both justify and to sanctify the ungodly. Now look at the next phrase. 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son. Here it is, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does that mean? Well, the first thing that in the likeness of sinful flesh tells us is that the incarnation is a fact of history. That God sent his son, that God the son came into the world, he was made flesh. Again, in the beginning was the word, and the word is with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation is a reality of history. And this is another important point of uh, doctrine historically in in the church because there's another heresy in the church that taught that Jesus really did not come with a literal physical body. It's a heresy known as docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism. And and docetism was an early Christian heresy promoted a a false view about the humanity of Christ to, uh, the, the word docetism comes from the Greek word dokeian, which means to seem. So according to the, doci, the docetists, or the, to, uh, the teaching of docetism, Jesus only seemed to have a body like ours. Reading from source material on the issue, it says, Docetism allowed that Jesus may have been in some way divine, but denied his full humanity. Hardcore docetists taught that Jesus was only a, a, a phantom or an illusion, appearing to be human but having no body at all. Other forms of docetism taught that Jesus had a quote-unquote heavenly body of some type, but not a real natural body of flesh. Docetism was closely related to Gnosticism, which viewed physical matter as inherently evil and spiritual substance as inherently good. The problem, the writer says here, with docetism is that it denies the core truths of the gospel, namely the death and the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus did not have a real body, then he did not really die. Docetists teach uh, that the suffering on the cross was merely an illusion. Uh, The the, uh, uh, Mohammedans, uh, Islam teaches that, right? That that he didn't really die on the cross. Hmm. Bible says he did. Now we got a now we got a, a argument of authority. Whose authority do we believe? Well, I tell you what, whose authority you believe is going to determine your eternal destiny. I guarantee you that. You better pick wisely. The writer goes on and says, if Jesus had no physical body, he could not have risen bodily from the dead. Without the actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no salvation. We're still in our sins, and our faith is futile. You could read about that in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse seventeen, if you wanted to. Docetism also denies the ascension of Christ since he had no real body to make the ascent, right? So docetism is a problem. It's a great heresy in the early church. That's why if you notice, you'll see often through the New Testament, uh, the writers take great pains to make sure that the reader understands that Jesus Christ really did have a literal physical body. Just listen, 1 John 1 and 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was in the Father was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship with, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, the Apostle John so uh, strongly de- declared the reality of the physical 
incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ that he says in John 2 and 7, he says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. John says, if you deny the literal physical incarnation of the Son of God, then you are of the antichrist. It is that big of an issue. It was the Council of Chalcedon, 451 A.D., that affirmed that Jesus Christ was both truly man and truly God. Two natures in one person without mixture, confusion, separation, or division, each nature retaining its own attributes. There's only one Jesus Christ. There's nobody else like him. He's the only begotten one. He's the only unique one of his kind, the God-mankind. Fully God, yet fully man. Romans 1 and 3, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Peter 2 and 24, he himself bore his sins in his body, or bore our sins in his body on the cross. Hebrews 10 and 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Verse 10 of that chapter. By by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ came in a literal physical body. And another heresy surrounding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come into the world, incarnated into the world, surrounds the holiness and the sinlessness of that body. Was the body and the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ sinful, or was it sinless? Well, look at the text. helps us. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son, here it is, in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. So Paul wants us to understand very clearly that the flesh that Christ came in was not sinful. Christ's human nature was sinless. Familiar story, but listen in that context, or in this context. Luke 1 and 26. Now the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, the descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Verse 34, Luke chapter 1, verse or 35. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Child, Him born without sin. And of course, that whole passage of Scripture also brings to the forefront the doctrine of the virgin birth. Mary had never known a man. The child that was conceived and through her was by the power of the Most High. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and by the power of the Most High, He will overshadow you. Christ was virgin-born. What does that matter? It matters that He was not born of the seed of Joseph. It matters that because He was not born of the seed of Joseph, He has no original sin transmitted from Adam through Joseph. Because He is the Holy Child, the Son of God. The eternal, sinless God was placed into the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Most High. 
And he wasn't born in the sense that we think of being born in the sense of originating. He's always been. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. Matthew 1 and 18, Mary and his mother uh, had been uh, betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Who's that baby? Well, it's God. God with us. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. I think sometimes we like to celebrate Christmas as the birthday of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's not correct. Christmas is not about the birth of Jesus Christ. Christmas is about the incarnation of the Son of God. The fact that God became a man, that God put on flesh, that's what Christmas is about. The Bible declares that he had no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4 and 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7 verse 26. It is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above in the heavens. Hebrews 9 and 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish, to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. First Peter 1 and 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life or inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. All right, so what the law could not do, God did. He sent, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Right? So God so loved the world so much, he, he intercedes, right? And he sends his own son, the dear Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to understand who Jesus is, right? And it's important for us to understand who he is and what God sent him to do. He had to come into this world as a man because he had to die for men. And, and he had to be God because only the sinless God, only the sinless Savior, God incarnate, would be able to pay the penalty for mankind's sin. One commentator puts it like this. He says, if he had not been both fully human and fully sinless, he could not have offered, uh, could not have offered an acceptable sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. If Jesus had not himself been without sin, he not only could not have, been made, uh, could not have made a sacrifice for fallen mankind, but would have needed to have a sacrifice made on his own behalf. But Jesus resisted every temptation of Satan and denied sin in any part of his life, on his earthly life. Sin was compelled to yield its supremacy to the flesh to the victory, whereby Jesus Christ became sovereign over sin and its consequences death. Jesus Christ was born sinless, came into this world sinless, and lived a sinless life because we can't. He's our substitute. And he becomes the victor over sin, the victor over death and the consequences of sin. God sending his own son in the lightness. That word lightness means that which looks like something, something that resembles or identifies with something else. And it's a very intentional statement by Paul through the Holy Spirit. For if Paul would have said he sent him in the lightness of flesh, that would have been heresy. Get that? 
If Paul would have, if, if, if the text would have said he sent him in the likeness of flesh, that's heresy. Because he wasn't in the likeness of flesh, he was flesh. Now we're back to docetism. But here, what Jesus, Paul says Jesus was to the Holy Spirit, he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Again, one commentator points out this. If he had said God sent his own son in sinful flesh, that would have uh, said that he's a sinner like us. So again, it's a very guarded statement. The theologians call it a, a hepax legomenon, meaning the statement's only used one time, never else uh, again in the Bible. Drawing special attention to this. So Jesus, God's own son, was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Fully flesh, but he wasn't sinful. Similar, but not exact. In the likeness of sinful flesh. So it's a very important, very exact statement declaring the sinlessness of Christ and the fact that the Father sent the Son into the world in a manner that brought him to the closest possible relationship to sinful humanity, yet short of becoming sinful himself. Sinless, but counted as a sinner on the cross, actually bearing our sin, right? He who knew no sin. Again, Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, sin, on our behalf. Uh, Isaiah fifty three twelve. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Again, it's called substitution. There are four great theological words, four great theological uh, uh, um, uh, works in this passage of Scripture, these first four verses. Condemnation, justification, substitution. And then in verse 4, we're going to see Sanctification. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. So Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, the God-man, born of a virgin, he not only paid the penalty for sin, he also, listen, he also destroyed sin on Calvary's cross. He destroyed through his body sin on Calvary's cross, and then he destroyed sin in humankind because of our union with him and his union with us. 1 Peter 3 and 18, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I mean, it's a tremendous truth. Jesus Christ destroyed sin. Blood couldn't do that. Jesus Christ destroyed sin in humankind because of our union with Christ. Uh, Again, we've got to think biblical truth, not feelings. For what the law could not do, because it was through the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Next phrase says, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I told you last time that that, uh, for uh, as an offering, really isn't there in the original. It's added by the translators to help us in our reading and our understanding. So really what it says is this, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Concerning sin. God the Father sent the Son into the world in the likeness of sinful human flesh to deal with sin. He didn't send him into the world to be a good example. He didn't send him into the world to show us what God's love was all about, although Jesus Christ actually did both of those things. God sent his Son for sin. What the law couldn't do weeks of us through the flesh, God did sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, concerning sin. As an offering for sin. The translators put that in there so we understand it because that's the way we would understood it from an Old Testament perspective. As an offering for sin. John 12 and 46. I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. 
John 10 and 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, and I take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you do what I command. First John 3 and 16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. It's substitution. Jesus Christ came for the purpose of dealing with sin, to die for sin, to be the sin offering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the only son of his kind, the only one of his kind, the God-man, uniquely loved of the Father, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Tremendous truth. Listen, if Jesus Christ only came into the world to be an example uh, of how to live life in this world, if he only came into this world to tell us how much God loves us, then we'd still all be condemned. Because none of those things help. We can look at him, we can look at his perfection, we can look at our lives, we can see our imperfection. If Christ didn't come for any reason except to die, we would still be in the same place as if we were under the law, condemned, needing a Savior, needing a Redeemer. Our souls would still be damned eternally. Hebrews 9.22 uh, says, Because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And it's just tremendous, encouraging truth. What the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son, the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. You go back to the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, right? Despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely our griefs for, um, he, he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He, he was, uh, yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken of God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. He came to die. You know, by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Robert Haldane, the great 19th century Scottish commentator, says this, We see the Father assume the place of judgment against the Son in order to become the Father of those who are his enemies. The Father condemns the Son of his love that he may absolve the children of wrath. What a tremendous statement. That's who we once were, apart from Christ, children of wrath. We see the Father assume the place of judgment against his dearly beloved Son in order to become the Father of those who were once his enemies. That's who we were. The Father condemns the sinless Son, the Son of his love, that he may absolve the children of wrath. That's us. How do you get it in Romans 5? Right? God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. tremendous truth what the law couldn't do weak as it was through the flesh God did sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin he as offering for sin he condemns sin in the flesh right God the father sends his son in the likeness of our human flesh to deal with our sin he becomes a man and through the death of the God man Jesus Christ on the cross God condemns sin in the flesh and God not only gives us a pardon of sin, God only breaks the stranglehold that sin once had governing our lives, that through the person of the Holy Spirit might now come and dwell within us. And we actually now, because of what God has done through Christ and Christ standing as our substitute, and God sending the Holy Spirit now to dwell in us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we now have the ability to live new lives in Christ. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Look, the law makes demands upon us that we can never deliver on because of the weakness of our flesh. 
Therefore, the law can never destroy sin. All, all the people are trying to keep the law. The law can never destroy sin. You've got a sin problem. How are you going to deal with that? Well, I'm pretty close to perfect. Well, you've got to be perfect, perfect. There's none righteous, no, not one. The law can never destroy sin, but Jesus Christ can. All the religious rituals in the world, counting beads, lighting candles, repeating prayers, not going to help. Hebrews 10 and 1, For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very former things, can never by the same sacrifice year by year, which they continually offer, make perfect those who draw near. You know, in the Old Testament, they had a sacrificial system. They did it over and 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 over again, and it never took away one sin. It was a picture of the one that mankind needs who can come and make us perfect. Religious rituals, Old Testament, any religious system can't make us perfect because the law can't eliminate sin can't take away sin, can't destroy sin. All the law can do is point out our sin. All the law can do is condemn us. And what the law shows us is we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need a substitute. Again, the Hebrews passage takes away the first in order to establish the second. We're going to send, you know, God's going to send Christ into the world with a body. A body who can offer one time as a sacrifice for sins for all time and then sit down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected all who are sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10. Again, the law makes demands that can't de- we can't deliver. And, and no matter how good we are, no matter how good the law is, no matter how wonderful God's law is, it can never rid us of sin ultimately. We need a Savior. We need a perfect substitute. One who can come and offer a one-time sacrifice for sin and then sit down at the right hand of God and perfect for all time those who are sanctified in Him. We need to substitute the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God has done through Christ. He condemns sin in the flesh because there's none of us righteous, not even one. Right? There's none of us who understands. There's none of us who seeks for God. Hebrews or Romans 3, verse 19, Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, closed and all the world may become accountable to God. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Every system of the world's religious systems are always uh, trying to push some kind of form of law. Do this, don't do that. Stand up, sit down, light a candle, beads, prayers, whatever. The works of the law never justify anybody. No flesh is ever justified by the works of the law. Because, again, the law can't eliminate sin. One writer says this, but God condemned sin. That means not only that he pronounced a sentence on it, it means that he consigned it to doom and destruction. And it was in the death of Jesus Christ that sin was ultimately defeated. Because you see, sin gathered up all of its power and threw it all at Christ and lost. When he burst out of the grave three days later, sin could not hold its prey, could it? And that showed that sin was defeated. God, through Christ, condemned sin that condemned us. And all of us who are in Christ Jesus become beneficiaries of the judgment of sin on the cross of Christ which was released us from the penalty of sin. It released us from the power of sin. And someday it will release us from the very presence of sin. I mean, that's a tremendous truth, right? He broke the power of canceled sin. He set the prisoners free. 
We always talk about it when we come to, uh, quote-unquote, Easter, you know, that the world celebrates. We need a risen Savior. We need somebody who can go before us and not only defeat death for us, but we need somebody who's broke the, paid the penalty for sin, the wages of sin is death, and somebody who's defeated death, somebody who's come out of the grave, who has defeated sin for us. You were slaves of sin. You now became slaves of righteousness. Isn't that what it says in the book of Romans? That's reality. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. Because we couldn't do it. Our, our flesh is weak. It's because of what God did. The reality. No condemnation. The reason, justification. The route through substitution. The results. Verse 4. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Tremendous truth. Because this verse is talking about not just the gospel righteousness that we have at redemption imputed to us the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. This verse says, in order that the requirement of the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Again, it's saying that people who are genuinely saved look like Christ. They don't look like who they used to. And there's a righteousness that God gives us and the word would be imparts to us. We're actually imparted the righteousness of Christ, not just imputed, but imparted. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Very important words. The reason that God sent his son into the world is that we would, is, is that because we could not save ourselves in keeping God's law, but the purpose for God sending his son into the world, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us. The law couldn't justify all the law could do is condemn. The law couldn't free us from condemnation, but Christ could. Christ could come be a substitute. Christ could stand in our place. He could take our our penalty upon himself, become our sin bearer. uh, God judges our sin through the body of Christ on Calvary. Christ bears our sin, and his righteousness is credited to us. It's imputed to us. We are justified before God, declared righteous. But justification alone doesn't lead to the righteous requirements of the law being fulfilled in us. We need more than just a positional righteousness. We, we need and have been granted an actual righteousness in Christ. Again, the imparted righteousness of Christ. That, that's uh, what verse 4 is about. I said it this morning. Not only Jesus uh, saves us, uh, God sent Christ into the world to save us from our sin. He saves us, uh, or to save us in our sin, but he saves us from our sin. That's this new creation idea. It's not just a positional Righteousness. There's a practicality that has to be shown in the life of a genuine believer, and that's what verse 4 is about. The righteous requirements of the law be fulfilled in us, right? We have to leave our sin behind because Christ has given us that freedom to walk away from the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin, the power of sin. And again, that's more encouraging news, the truth about who Jesus Christ is, holy living. I didn't say perfection. Right? People run, run to extremes in error, and what they do is they literally throw the baby out with the bathwater because they don't understand what they're saying, and they don't understand how wonderful the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ is. He actually sets the prisoners free. Jesus Christ actually saves us in our sin, and he saves us from our sin. He gives us new lives in Christ, that we would walk according to 
not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, that's enough. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next time. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for our time together in the Word, how it is a great encouragement to us, the believer who's justified by faith alone and the person of Jesus Christ alone, empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit, transformed and changed from the inside out, does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And and we're so thankful for that wonderful truth, thankful for the fact that there's no condemnation because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. All praise belongs to you, our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.